Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko, and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, U.S. President Donald Trump to meet his Kenyan counterpart Uhuru Kenyatta, and Zimbabwe's President Emerson Nagagwa calls for unity. In economics news, oil pumping resumes in South Sudan's Thomas Southfield, and in sports news, Ethiopian runner wins at Mandela Day Marathon. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa has vowed to open a probe into the violence which followed the country's July election. He was speaking after being sworn in at a stadium in the capital Harare on Sunday. Mnangagwa, whose inauguration comes after the disputed July election, says he will soon announce members of a commission of inquiry into the violence. The isolated and unfortunate incident of violence that reared its ugly head on 1st August 2018 was regrettable and most unacceptable. Such conduct should be alien and vile to our nature, culture and traditions as the Zimbabwean people. Meanwhile, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has called on Zimbabwe's opposition MDC alliance to concede defeat and move on. He was among some African leaders and guests who attended the inauguration in support of President Emerson Mnangagwa. Ramaphosa says in elections they are winners and losers. We've been saying that political parties that ran for an election and did not succeed and their leaders must accept this outcome and must move on. It's now time to rebuild Zimbabwe, to make Zimbabwe strong, and there will be another chance for another election. That is what always happens with elections. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta is expected to meet with his American counterpart Donald Trump as East Africa's commercial hub emerges from months of electoral turmoil. Kenyatta arrived in Washington on Sunday morning. He's the second African leader to meet with Trump at the White House. The Nigerian president visited earlier this year. Kenyatta's office says he and Trump will focus on trade and regional security. Kenyatta is set to host the British Prime Minister Theresa May on Thursday. 
The Democratic Republic of Congo says two of the first 10 people given an experimental treatment for the Ebola virus have recovered. The MAB114 drug is one of five experimental treatments approved for use in the DRC. The BBC's Mary Harper reports. The head of the World Health Organization described the news as a global first and a ray of hope for Ebola patients. Scientists developed the drug by isolating antibodies from the survivor of a 1995 outbreak in Congo. It proved 100% effective on infected monkeys. This is a rare piece of good news. The current outbreak is massively challenging as it's in the conflict-ridden east of the country. This is the tenth time Ebola has broken out in Congo. The first was more than 40 years ago. And finally, Italy has ended a standoff over who should take in more than 130 migrants whom it was holding on board a Coast Guard vessel off the Sicilian port. The migrants, mainly from Eritrea, had been stranded at the port since last Monday due to the government's refusal to let them off the boat until other European Union states agreed to take some of them in. More than 650,000 people have reached Italian shores since 2014, and Rome says it will not let any more rescue ships dock unless the migrants are shared out around the EU. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central Africa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa, leading the Women's Month Conversations. President Emerson Nagagwa was sworn in in Harare on Sunday, making him the second leader to be voted into office from 1980. His inauguration was attended by various heads of state and government, including the African Union chairperson Paul Kagame and South Africa's President Sul Ramaphosa. Nagagwa pledged to reform Zimbabwe as well as introduce sweeping changes in the entire economy. Meanwhile, a day earlier, the main opposition leader, Nelson Chamisa, unveiled a new political plan meant to challenge Mnangagwa's legitimacy. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. Emerson Dambuzo Mnangagwa is now president of Zimbabwe, the second voted leader after Robert Mugabe, who ruled for 37 years from independence in 1980. Mnangagwa came out winner of the July 30th polls with 50.8%. Although his biggest contender, Nelson Chamisa, leader of the opposition MDC alliance, is challenging that result. However, in line with the constitution, Mnangagwa had to be sworn in within 48 hours after the constitutional court ruling on Friday. I, Emerson Dambuzo Mnangagwa, 
swear that as president of Zimbabwe, I will be faithful to Zimbabwe and will obey, uphold, and defend the Constitution and all other laws of Zimbabwe, and that I will promote whatever will advance and oppose whatever may harm Zimbabwe, that I will protect and promote the rights of the people of Zimbabwe, that I will discharge my duties with all my strength to the best of my knowledge and ability and true to the dictates of my conscience and that I will devote myself to the well-being of Zimbabwe and its people. So help me God. It is not a secret Mnangagwa faces a torrid task to turn around the country's economy which suffers from a cash crunch, massive corruption, poverty and unemployment. However, Mnangagwa pledged he would remain seized with challenges in a bid to transform lives of the ordinary citizens. Ladies and gentlemen, now is the time for us all to unite as a nation and grow our economy. Let us courageously and diligently embark on a shared journey towards the realization of our national vision to transform Zimbabwe into a middle-income economy with increased investment, decent jobs, broad-based empowerment, free from poverty and corruption by 2030. According to Mnangagwa, invitations were dispatched to every opposition leader, including Nelson Chamisa, who did not attend. An emotional moment came when Mnangagwa read a letter from former President Robert Mugabe, who could not attend owing to health challenges on him and his wife Grace. His daughter, Bona, and her husband represented the family. Mugabe congratulated Mnangagwa for winning the election. Your Excellency, thank you for your invitation to me and my wife to attend the inauguration ceremony. My wife is not well in Singapore and also I'm not well, so I'm sending my daughter and her husband to represent us. Hearty congratulations, Arajim Mugabe. On one hand, Mnangagwa might find it hard to deal with Chamisa, who has since approached African Human Rights Commission for arbitration on disputed polls. Chamisa implored Mnangagwa to be honest and accept defeat. How do I? Yeah, I wrote to him. I was expecting a response. He knows where we are headquartered. He knows where we are located. Of course, maybe he doesn't have my direct line. But if he wants it, he can get it. They listen to my phone. Meaning to say that they know what I say all the time. He has a way of doing it if he wants to talk to us. And we have said that dialogue has to be on legitimacy, on free and fair elections, so that we don't have a vicious sake of disputed elections. We want to put a full stop to this thing I told you last time, that in the rural areas, people are not expressing themselves. They are almost in captivity. They are under slavery. We want those people to be liberated. And it has to be a political solution so that we resolve this issue.
issues around the security situation in the country. Each time people vote, it's almost as if they are inviting problems for themselves. Because there is freedom of expression, but there is no freedom after expression. For Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta will seek the support of the U.S. for a non-permanent seat at the United Nations Security Council when he meets U.S. President Donald Trump today, according to Kenya's Foreign Affairs Ministry. Kenyatta's visit will, according to Cabinet Secretary Dr. Monica Juma, position Kenya globally, but political analysts say they do not expect much to come out of the meeting as Trump's administration is yet to pronounce itself on its policy for Africa. For more on this, our Nairobi reporter Sarah Kimani spoke to political analyst Dr. Alex Awiti and she began by asking Awiti if the U.S. trip by Kenyatta is vital for Kenya and Africa. To the African continent, it doesn't amount much. Uh, remember, President Trump has called his incendiary names before. Um, and I don't think that uh, this definitely uh, has the endorsement of the African Union. So it could be just a private visit, and uh, Kenya is angling to, for a non-permanent seat in the United Sta- Nations Security Council. Uh, so maybe there will be a, a bit of uh, lobbying and uh, uh, conversation uh, when the vote comes. Uh, so maybe that's what President Kenyatta might get out of that. But I think maybe with that uh, diplomatic leverage, what, what can you achieve? South Africa was there. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think they achieved much with, with, that, with that seat. Uh. This comes uh, a day after the tweet on South Africa, and, and a lot of people probably want to see, should President Kenyatta go there and speak on behalf of the continent? Or? Uh, so I, I don't think that uh, Kenyatta is going to be speaking on behalf of Africa. He's going to stop getting fixated on, on, on the United States uh, as, as, as a driver of global economy. They're much more important players. Uh, China now is by far the biggest economic player. Very soon will be the biggest player even security-wise, uh, even culturally. Uh, so I think we should be very clear-headed about where we want to go in the future. And Africa shouldn't play small. We are, we are by far going to be the largest continent uh, uh, on the planet. Um, and our human capital force in the next 20 years is, is going to be of, of significant consequence. If there's only one thing that you'd want President Kenyatta to come back with mm-hmm. on the continent uh, from the Trump visit, what would it be? It would be to get Mr. Trump to respect Africa. That's Dr. Alex Awiti, a political analyst based in Kenya, speaking to Sarah Kimani in Nairobi. Human rights campaigners in Sierra Leone say the country's justice system is fraught with many challenges and are asking the new government for reforms. Key to this is the justice sector. Since the end of the civil war 16 years ago, the country has struggled to set up courts across the country, which has had serious consequences for the prisons which are grossly overcrowded. Recently, shocking images secretly taken inside one of the prisons in the South Drew outrage from the public. The BBC has been granted exclusive access inside the prison in Bo from where Umaru Fofana sent us this report, a warning that his report contains some details you may find distressing. Welcome to the Bo prison. Well, it is actually called the correctional center, but it is anything but correctional. Here, the air hangs heavy with a cocktail stench of filth human excreta and urine. I want to welcome you to the Bow Mill Correctional Center. This center was built in colonial days. It was built for 80 inmates, but like almost all other prisons in the country, it now holds over three times its capacity. James Kaprotarawali is a regional prison commander. Overcrowding is really our issue as president. And as of today, 
as you have seen, we have 244 inmates in our custody. And besides that, we have 100 inmates on remand. We have 78 trial inmates. And then we have 68 convicted inmates. Out of the trial inmates, we have 15 with indictments. And we have 61 without indictment as of today. When I get anyone uh, with the non indicted yet? 70% of the trial inmates here have not even been indicted. And many of them have been behind bars for years. Among them, a man probably in his 40s who has been here for 15 years. No files exist on him. And in his time behind bars, he has developed serious psychiatric problems. The walls are bedaubed with what looks like blood stains. The inmates say they are blood of bedbugs and even fecal substance. During the day, inmates use unsightly pit latrines with broken doors that are barely hanging. At night, they have to make do with plastic buckets inside their overcrowded cells, which they use in turns. This place typifies the prisons in Sierra Leone. This tiny cell here holds 15 inmates. It's hot, it's smelly, because for 14 hours every day, they use inside this room as their toilet. Many of the inmates look emaciated and have developed scabies and other skin diseases. Some are very sick with swollen legs. Their clinic, where they are meant to receive treatment, is a tiny room that can barely fit in a table and a chair. The shelves hold very few medicines. The spokesman for the inmates, let's call him Joe, begs for help. Well, in cell cell, now 24 did there are 24 in our cell. We want the authorities to provide prisoners with basic facilities such as medical care, regular food and water supply, as well as a proper place to sleep. Visitors in! And all other female officers! It is better inside the female prison, but only just. There, inmates are also overcrowded. All convicts are crammed inside one room. A one-year-old baby crawls on the bare rugged floor inside the cell. Just um, close to the cell is a nurse's room and there are three babies here lying on the bed. They look really pretty chubby and uh, they age between two weeks and uh, seven months. They are staring at me. All three of them are boys and they look, oh, look at this. He's coming after us. He almost fell off the bed there. The babies have had to be brought inside the prison, despite their mothers having committed what are generally called misdemeanors. The country's Criminal Procedures Act does not provide for alternatives to detention or fines, like suspended or deferred sentencing, or even community service. Many say this is in clear violation of the UN Standard Minimum Rules for Non-Custodial Measures, otherwise called the Tokyo Rules, an issue which the relevant government minister promises to take up with the Attorney General. I can't today that the Bold Mail Correctional Centre, for all I can see for myself, the reports they were done the hearing. On tour of the facility for the first time, that new Minister of Internal Affairs, Edward Soloku, says he's appalled by what he has seen. More than shocking. The delay in terms of giving judgment by the judiciary. Some people have been in remand for over one year. There are also people, especially one or two people who have been here for over 10, 15 years. No records on them. 244 inmates with a small room as a clinic. Definitely you expect health hazards. I have told them to furnish my office with all details about inmates in their custody. We will look them 
inmates by inmates and provide the necessary advice to the judiciary. As a new government, it's difficult. You know, inherited a very battered economy. But that besides, we are putting our gears together to see how we can mitigate some of the suffering our people are going through. With the assistance of donor community and good friends, definitely will live up to the expectation of the human rights issues people are talking about. Campaigners say the country's entire prison service is broken. Prison Watch monitors prison conditions across the country and they've been sounding the alarm for some time now. Mambu Feka is its executive director. Prison conditions fall far short of national standards. So we cannot even start with international standards. It's quite appalling. It needs to be fixed because it's broken. You'll be shocked to know that in fact people on traffic offenses and misdemeanor are populating the prisons more than any other person else. If you can find every traffic offense Instead of wasting more money, you are actually getting more money. There is only one truck to transport prisoners in the whole of southern Sierra Leone. Without a lockup or a toilet for the courts, male and female prisoners on trial are crammed inside it all day and they also use it as their toilet. Despite the harsh conditions, there is room for music. Back to the female prison, these women are singing us goodbye. But at the moment, it seems it's the justice and prison systems that are in urgent need of rehabilitation. If these prisoners are to be given, another start in life. That report by the BBC's Umaru Fofana. Let's go back in time to today in 1975. Haile Selassie, the last emperor of Ethiopia's 3,000-year-old monarchy, died in Addis Ababa at the age of 83, almost a year after being overthrown. That's today in history in the year 1975. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The discovery of a new confirmed case of Ebola virus in a town surrounded by armed insurgents in the Democratic Republic of Congo has highlighted the difficulty of protecting people from infection there. That's according to Dr. Peter Salama, Deputy Director General of Emergency Preparedness and Response at the World Health Organization. He has been speaking to UN News about the difficulties of just getting to Oicha Town in the east of the country. To date, there have been 103 confirmed and probable cases of the disease in the latest outbreak and 63 people have died. Having just come back from DRC, I can report that this outbreak is still extremely concerning. We have more than 100 cases now, so it's past the 100 case threshold, and we have more than 60 deaths. We also know that the outbreak is in multiple locations. It's involving healthcare workers, which is always a red flag for us, because that means more cases may be on the way. It involves several sites at the same time. 
and it involves a very complex situation from both a logistic and from a security perspective. The international response thus far has been strong, strong leadership from the Ministry of Health of the government of DRC. WHO has more than 150 people on the ground in several of the critical locations, including the epicenters of Mangina and Beni towns, which are relatively uh, large towns of 40,000 plus people. We're getting tremendous support from the UN peacekeeping mission MONUSCO in the country. But isn't there still an ongoing concern about access? So, so far, the majority of cases have been within a 20 to 30 kilometer radius of Beni and Mangina, which is accessible to us. However, we had unfortunate news, which was confirmation of a case and another probable case in Ocha, which is a small town around 20 to 30 kilometers east of Beni. And we know the road to that town is a red zone, so it does complicate our ability to reach those cases. In addition to that, we know we have an additional 41 contacts which are occurring in other red zones. So, so far we've been able to keep up with those contacts through cell phones, so they call into health workers twice a day to report on their temperature, and we have also some local health workers that are able to visit uh, some of those uh, contacts in red zones. But it's quite true that this security situation is really complicating our response. And in terms of the response from um, residents in the region, who many of whom are displaced, they've been subject to uh, uh, these armed gangs who are co- continuing to take people hostage, whether they're from NGOs, whether they're local government officials. How are you managing to reach out to them and reassure them that what uh, the World Health Organization and partners are doing is in their best interest? Well, I have to say that overall the acceptance of all of the critical programs in this response by the population, by the community in North Kivu has been tremendous. It's been very positive. And I can't recall even one request of someone to be vaccinated that refused vaccination, for example, out of the almost 3,000 people that have been vaccinated. But indeed, there have been some isolated incidences uh, really to do more with grief reactions from young people in the last week that have disrupted the response. Because this disease, unfortunately, is amplified by some of the most important caring practices to do with burial, caring and washing, kissing the body, for example. And so, of course, it's always extremely delicate delicate to try and ensure respect for those rituals while at the same time protecting the population from further infection. But we have a strong group across UNICEF, the Red Cross, WHO, working with local anthropologists, reaching out to community elders, community leaders, business leaders who are really mobilizing and helping us really uh, make the communities aware and bringing them on board with this response. And by and large, that's been very successful. We're on top of this response? We are certainly putting uh, some of the best people and uh, our best knowledge to bear on on this response thus far. I'm reluctant to use the phrase we're on top of it because this disease should never be underestimated and particularly in this complex security environment, there are still huge risks associated with this outbreak. That's Dr. Peter Salama, Deputy Director General of Emergency Preparedness and Response at the World Health Organization, and he was speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. Now, let's go back in time to today in 1971. A coup attempt fails in Chad. The government accuses Egypt of playing a role in the attempt and breaks diplomatic relations. Today in history in 1971.
South Africa's Ministry of Health recently hosted a stakeholder consultative meeting in the capital, Pretoria, to provide an opportunity to exchange views on how the country's healthcare system can be significantly improved. Special emphasis was placed on the recently gazetted National Health Insurance, a piece of legislation that the government believes will pave the way for more access to medical healthcare. Health Minister Dr. Aaron Mutzwaledi elaborates further on the aims and objectives of the event. Well, it's a preparation for a national health summit, which is going to be called by the president. And consultative meeting is to clear things about NHI or universal health coverage, national health insurance, as you know, as we call it in South Africa, to clear issues that where we must reach an understanding so that when we go to the summit, we go there with clear proposals for the whole country on how the healthcare system is going to be run in the country so that we achieve universal health coverage. And how would you rate the quality of health care provided to South Africans at the moment? Well, if I don't know exactly whether you want me to put in numbers, etc. The reason that we want universal health coverage is because we want quality health care, which we don't have now. But we believe we can achieve that through universal health coverage. At least that's what United Nations and the World Health Organization have said when they encourage countries to move towards universal health coverage. They were not doing it as a luxury. They were doing it because they are aware that healthcare systems are in trouble. That includes the South African healthcare system. What do you consider as some of the critical problems facing the country's healthcare system? Well, the critical problem, like in most of the sub-Saharan, are common. is the issue of shortage of human resources, the issue of poor infrastructure, the issue of poor quality of healthcare, the issues of inefficiencies, the issues of ineffectiveness of the healthcare system. So those are the common issues which we believe NHI will solve. And in South Africa, they are occurring because we are running a two-tier system, one for the rich and one for the poor. The amount of money that is poured in, even from Treasury, I mean from the fiscal, from the national fiscal, to try and sustain the private healthcare at the expense of the poor, and I was showing that we need to stop all those things because whatever little resource is there, it must be shared by everybody in the country. Now, you say that the National Health Insurance has the potential to address the ills wrecking the healthcare system. How challenging do you think revamping the system will be? The revamping of the healthcare system is ongoing, it's forever. There's no way that you can put a time limit and say by this time you'll have revamped the healthcare system. Revamping goes on continuously. The building of new hospitals, new structures, the maintaining of those who are there. It's a daily thing. It has, it has to go on and on. And you can't say by this time I'll have finished revamping. That would be very wrong. Some say the solution to the significant challenges facing South Africa's healthcare system lies in better collaboration with the different parties. How involved would you say the private sector is in this process? Well, that's what we want to discuss. If you are talking about the private health sector, they have not yet done so. But if you are talking about other private sector institutions, yes, they do build clinics here and there. They do help to revamp. They do make donations like building a neonatal care in a particular hospital, etc. But we don't want handouts. We want a system where all the available money in the country is pulled and put together in one pool to help the rich and the poor equally, which is what the president was emphasizing, that we can't keep on running a healthcare system where your treatment depends on how rich you are. It has to be for everybody, 
according to their needs. And you can only do that if you have got one pooling of funds. And if you don't go to the private sector begging, but they become part of you. And are you happy, doctor, with the current debate around improving health care in the country? Yeah, no, I am. Not a single person. These are people from diverse groups, from the trade union movement, from private health care, from state institutions, from our medical school, from academics. Not a single one. 18 people spoke in response to the president. 18. And not a single one said they don't want NHR. What they were raising were concerns and the methodology and the way forward. So I'm very happy, actually. Well, it's a preparation for a... That's Dr. Aaron Mutzwaledi, the Minister of Health in South Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa confirms that his ousted predecessor, Robert Mugabe, sent a letter of apology for not attending his inauguration at the National Sports Stadium in the capital, Harare, on Sunday. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta is expected to meet with his American counterpart, Donald Trump, at the White House as the East as East Africa's commercial hub emerges from months of electoral turmoil and well wishes in the United States lined the streets waving flags as a hearse brought veteran Senator John McCain's body from his ranch near Cornwall, Arizona to a funeral home in Phoenix. McCain passed away at the age of 81 on Saturday. Those are the stories making headlines. Our headlines up next with that. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebazi, the presenter of the Albinism Report, a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time. Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebati, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. In what it terms a year of poor service delivery, South Africa's ruling ANC in the Gauteng province has compiled a 2017-2018 scorecard for the DAEFF coalition government. It says the current leadership in the two major metropolitan municipalities, Tswane and Johannesburg, ought to be changed and has called for fresh elections. Zolega Kodashe reports. The ANC has called for fresh elections in the two major metros, Tswane and Johannesburg. Deputy Chairperson of the ANC in Gauteng, Banyazali Sufi, says the metros have been riddled with corruption, a lack of service delivery and the appointments of unqualified persons in posts. He says, now that this information has surfaced, residents in both metros should be given the opportunity to cast a new vote. The only way to help the city is for the ANC to table the motion that we're going to table on Thursday 
We really believe the people of Tswane must be given an opportunity to elect a new leadership to run that municipality purely because the current unprincipled coalition is not working for the people of Tswane and the consequences are severe and our people are going through difficulties. Lisufi says the ANC will also support the motion of no confidence in Tswane Mayor Solim Simanga scheduled for Thursday. He says the running of the Tony Metro has shattered the DA's stance on ideal governance. The only way to help the city is for the ANC to table the motion that we're going to table on Thursday. We really believe the people of Tswane must be given an opportunity to elect a new leadership to run that municipality purely because the current unprincipled coalition is not working for the people of Tswane and the consequences are severe and our people are going through difficulties. Meanwhile, the office of the mayor in Johannesburg has reacted to the ANC announcement saying people in the Tswane and Johannesburg metros have already chosen their leaders. Spokesperson for Mayor Herman Mashaba, Luyandam Feka. The majority of residents within the city of Johannesburg at that voting point simply believed that the ANC majority within the city was no longer conducive to good governance. The people of Johannesburg have made their voices clear on the subject, but more so than that, it's literally the equivalent of asking the Turkey, if you will, to sit at the dinner table. The DA has also lashed out at the ANC for its claims that the DA-EFF coalition has been a failure. It says the successes of passing critical budgets and the continued support of the EFF proves otherwise. National spokesperson for the DA, Rifilo Njeke. We've been able to pass budgets through. We've been able to pass critical things through the very same coalition that people are claiming is failing. As recently as this year, we were able to push through budgets in both municipalities. That shows that as much as EFF is not in a 100% coalition, but they still support the vision that the DA has, which is to give service delivery to the people of Tanya and Johannesburg. The ANC is set to hold a vigil ahead of the motion of no confidence in Simanga on Wednesday, followed by a march on Thursday. The ANC lost both municipalities to the DA and EFF after municipal elections last year. The EFF could not be reached before the time of deadline. For SABC News, I am Zolega Kotashi in Johannesburg. Channel Africa. Kulta Njoy, Addis Ababa. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean Noel Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Diana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. The second week of the state capture inquiry gets underway this morning in Johannesburg with former South Africa's ruling ANC Member of Parliament, Feiki Mandur, expected to testify. Mandur is one of the people who were interviewed by former public protector Tulima Donsela in her investigation into state capture. The inquiry is headed by Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo. It was set up to investigate, among others, the alleged influence of the Gupta family on senior of senior appointments in government and state-owned enterprises. Amos Pajo has more. Mento is expected to reveal more details 
about how the politically connected Gupta family offered her the position of public enterprises minister back in 2010. This was apparently in exchange for cancelling the South African Airways route to India. The cancellation of this route was allegedly set to benefit India-based Chet Airways and Abu Dhabi's Etihad Airways. Mento first revealed the alleged Gupta bribe in a Facebook post in March 2016. She further claimed that former President Jacob Zuma was in another room when she was offered the job at the Gupta home in Sex and World. In her report, Madronzela said Mento told her that Zuma did not appear angry that she had declined the offer. Mento was appointed chairperson of the Public Enterprise Committee in May 2009 after she was replaced as chairperson of the ANC caucus. She was subsequently fired from the position following an investigation into the payment of a 155,000 rand by state rail agency Transnet for her to accompany Zuma on a state trip to China. Mentor's testimony comes just days after former Deputy Finance Minister Mgrebi Sichonas testified that in October 2015, Ajay Gupta offered him a bribe of 600 million rand and the position of Finance Minister two months before Ntlandlanene was removed from the position. I'm Amos Power in Johannesburg. The breeding of lions and other predators in South Africa for a range of exploitative activities this week came under the spotlight in a two-day parliamentary colloquium that was held in Cape Town by the Portfolio Committee on Tourism and other stakeholders. Ross Harvey, senior researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs, explains. Well, it was a very successful colloquium, I would say, and it's relatively unusual for Parliament to have a two-day session that was as inclusive as it was. And the purpose on this particular occasion was for the Portfolio Committee on Environmental Affairs to understand the uproar over the existence of the industry and the damage that it may be doing to brand South Africa, especially uh, South Africa's reputation as a conservation and tourism destination, a conservation success story and a tourism destination. And... The overwhelming sentiment, as reflected by the chair of the Portfolio Committee, Mr. Mapulani, was that every single sector of society just about is actively and vehemently opposed to the existence of captive predator breeding. From your ethical hunting organizations to pro-sustainable youth groups to animal welfare groups, almost everyone except for the South African Predator Association and the Professional Hunting Association of South Africa are absolutely opposed to the existence of captive predator breeding, largely because at every single point along the supply chain, the industry is built on false pretext and exploitation. And uh, this came out very strongly, despite, I think, the Department of Environmental Affairs trying to justify the existence of the industry uh, supposedly on the grounds of science. The other relatively overwhelming feature of the debate was that there isn't actually a lot of science to support the government's decision. And, you know, this is a debate that has to be concluded in some way or another, and we need better data if we are to conclude the debate. Now, who benefits from this trade in lion bones and other predators that are being now, in captivity? Let, yeah, it's a crucial question. And I think it's the most important question to be asked. Only a handful of breeders and other exploiters benefit from this particular set of activities. So 
the breeders benefit because they sell or rent cubs to facilities that then exploit relatively gullible or ignorant tourists to come and interact with cubs, either to cuddle or pet them or feed them, and then when they're too old for that, they walk with them, and then those facilities either give the cubs back to the breeders to then sell them on, or they sell them themselves into the canned hunting industry. But over the last two years, because the international outcry against canned hunting, demand for canned hunting in South Africa has dropped, which has resulted in a significant growth in the number of breeders who simply breed just for human interaction and then straight into the bone trade beyond that. And so there are approximately 300, we think, facilities across South Africa that earn, you know, if you consider the entire supply chain and the number of reasonable assumptions, probably in the region of $180 million in gross revenue per year. And this accrues to literally 300 people or less, 300 owners and shareholders. So a very small proportion of people benefit enormously from this. And yet the best estimates from the industry itself shows that the industry at best supports 600 direct jobs and possibly another 600 indirect jobs. They only come later in terms of our own wild line. However, what is interesting is the way in which the industry and even the government, and possibly because they've been duped by the industry, hide behind this idea that captive predator breeding somehow contributes to South Africa's conservation success story. That was Ross Harvey, senior researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Our economics updates up next with Tabiso Lohoko. Good morning. Salsa Sudan has resumed a pumping 20,000 barrels per day of crude from Matoma South Oil Field, where production had been suspended since 2013. Production at five previously suspended oil fields is expected to reach 80,000 barrels per day after maintenance work is completed by year end. Salsa Sudan's oil output currently stands at 130,000 barrels per day and is expected to reach 210,000 barrels per day by year end. South African bonds have suffered twice as the outflows of the next worst-hit emerging market at the height of the Turkey crisis. This is foreign investors scrambled to reduce volatility in their portfolios against a backdrop of rising economic risk. Even with the forward markets now heavily pricing in interest rate hikes this year, which would boost the potential yield in the local bands, investors are dumping the capital, Pretoria's debt with increasing speed. The Turkish lira has plunged nearly 40% this year over investor concern about President Tayyip Erdogan's influence on monetary policy and a deepening row with the United States, sparking a wave of selling across emerging market assets. The International Monetary Fund says its discussions with the Zambia 
Over an aid program are still on hold because the government's borrowing plans remain unsustainable. In February, the IMF rejected Zambia's borrowing plans, saying they risked making it harder for the southern African country to sustain its debt load. The fund says there are no discussions on a possible IMF-supported program, given that Zambia's borrowings plans undermine its macroeconomic stability. Zambia has raised its 2018 forecast for the country's fiscal deficit to 7.8% of gross domestic product from an initial estimate of 6.1%. Kenyan banks will be compelled to keep updated information on next of kin if account holders of members of parliament approve proposed amendments to the Banking Act. The architect of the interest rate cap in law wants banks to maintain a register containing particulars of the next of kin of all customers operating savings, current and fixed deposit accounts. The next of kin rule will ensure easy access to cash upon death of an account holder and conclusion of administration and succession processes in court. South Africa's Vodacom has launched Africa's first commercial 5G internet service in Lesotho, but says it will only be able to provide a similar service in its home market once the spectrum is made available. Vodacom, South Africa's biggest mobile operator by market value, says the rollout of the 5G or fifth-generation standard space service will provide subscribers in the Mountain Kingdom with fiber-like internet speeds. The company says its operations in Lesotho, a country of about 2 million people, has been assigned spectrum in the 3.5 gigahertz band, enabling the launch of a commercial 5G service. Indicators at the Sawa. The US dollar trades at 10.42. Botswana Pula is at 10.11. Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is trading at 4.10. Brazilian roll, 67.14. Russian ruble. At 69.61 Indian rupee, at 6.80 Chinese yuan, and at 14.22 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 86 cents to the euro. Looking at the commodities markets now, gold is trading at $1,207, platinum $788 an ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $75.75 a barrel. From an African perspective, you're listening to. Channel Africa. Sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update, we begin with rugby news. Plans for the Super Rugby's latest format revamp should be finalized in November. 
This, according to New Zealand Rugby Chief Executive Steve Chu. The Southern Hemisphere Competition is governing body, Sansa, has spent more than a year developing a blueprint to ensure Super Rugby's long-term future when the current broadcast deal expires in 2020. Chu says the Sansa board hopes to sign off on the plans when it meets in London in November. Chu was tight-lipped about the options being considered, saying debate was ongoing between Sansa's four member nations, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia and Argentina. The decisions reached in London will be crucial to the survival of Super Rugby, which has struggled with dwindling viewers in recent years amid constant tinkering with its format. The competition straddles 16 time zones and four continents, resulting in complaints of lopsided contests, taxing travel times and a fragmented three-conference system seen as too complex. And South African uh, Springbok coach Razi Erasmus has called his team's 32-19 defeat at the hands of Argentina in Mendoza as embarrassing. Erasmus was at pains to explain how almost the same team, the one which beat Argentina the week before in Durban, could not do so again. Erasmus considered that they have no choice but no one else to blame besides themselves. We quoted on this and it's going to be a headline. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't disappointing, it was embarrassing. You know, uh, the same team, one change from last weekend, where we were totally dominant for 80 minutes. We could have beaten them proper last weekend. We came here and, and we play like this. It's, it's embarrassing. And, 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 you know, we only have to point the fingers at ourselves, firstly as coaches and then as players, and we have to fix it, you know. And whatever the consequences is for this, players must get proper. We must look at ourselves. Uh, we can't play like this. Erasmus lamented his size inability to capitalize on their opportunities, especially in the second half. He believes that the Springboks will learn from the loss. I really thought we were in a great place. and I, I know it's not the traveling. The, the traveling a day later, definitely not having influence. Because the second half, we outplayed them. You know, we, we were the fresher team in the second half. We were playing good rugby in the second half. We just didn't use our opportunity. So there's a little bit of, of positivity, but I don't want to sound like somebody who's looking for positives after a performance like that. It, it's tough to point a finger on. You know, I just think we, we had so many opportunities, especially the first 10-15 minutes, which, which we felt like we are playing club rugby, we were going to get another 10-15. Test match rugby, you must score those points there. You know, and, and then when you have a few young guys in the back line and, and they rattle a little bit, they must learn from those things. On to athletics, world champion Rose Chelimo made light of brutal conditions on Sunday to scoop Asian Games gold for Bahrain with a runaway win in the women's marathon. The Kenyan-born athlete produced a devastating break from the leading pack after the 25-kilometer mark in Jakarta and plowed a lonely furrow as she crossed the line to win in a modest time of 2 hours, 34.51 seconds. Chelimo's gold continued Bahrain's recent Asian Games success in the marathon after Eunice Kirwa and Hassan Maroub, both also born in Kenya, won the women's and men's titles in 2014. And finally, with tennis news, Serena Williams launches her bid for the record equaling 24th Grand Slam title today, sharing the Arthur Ashe Stadium stage with defending men's champion Rafael Nadal in a blockbuster U.S. Open opening night. The two superstars, who own 40 Grand Slam titles between them, headline an opening day that sees eight former U.S. Open champions in action. Williams counts six U.S. Open titles among her 23 Grand Slams, and with one more, she will equal Margaret Court's all-time record for major titles. That's the Sport News this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amika na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, U.S. President Donald Trump to meet his king and counterpart Uhuru Kenyatta, and Zimbabwe's President Emerson Nagagwa calls for unity. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutu Ramagadza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 27763 003327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa is Niniola with a song titled Maradona. Yeah.